This is Chris Vogler. I'm the author of The Writer's Journey, Mythic Structure for Writers, and also Memo from the Story Department, Secrets of Structure and Character. And you're listening to Genretainment. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Genretainment over here at SciFiPulseRadio.com. This is Marks, and sadly, we're down one co-host. So you're just stuck with me this episode, but don't worry, Julie will be back next time. Now, first time listening to us, well, Genretainment is where we talk about what is happening in the world of film, TV, and web series. We give you interviews with the writers, directors, producers, and actors in both independent and not-so-independent creations. And for today's show, we chat with author Lori Shear about her new book, The Writer's Advantage, A Toolkit for Mastering Your Genre. We talk about the study of genre, which is, you know, fitting for a show called Genretainment. <laughs> and uh, we learn do's and don'ts for writers. We also have uh, bonus interviews, actually, this time, after the featured interview. I recently had the pleasure to be a panelist at Miami WebFest, and it was a really, really great time. Uh, there were a lot of great panels, um, of course, a lot of great web series from around the world being screened. Uh, I got to do a fight choreography panel, and I participated in some other panels on marketing and crowdfunding. Um, I also got to help out my friend and fellow web series creator Jeff Burns with his Super Geeked Up Live show. Uh, did I mention each night there was, you know, an official, you know, web fest party? <laughs> yeah, they, they know how to party over in Miami, that's for sure. Now, I met a lot of talented web series creators from all around the world. And I was pretty busy with, with the web series festival, so I didn't grab as many interviews as I would like to have. But I did grab a few for your listening pleasure. And I also did a book signing at the festival. Now, that new book is called Television on the Wild, Wild Web, How to Blaze Your Own Trail. Are you interested in making a web series? Well, then click on over to Amazon or my publisher over at mwp.com to buy a copy. Now, not only will you learn some really excellent stuff on how to make your web series, but you'll also be supporting this podcast, which would be super, super cool. Now, just one last thing before the featured interview. We do want to mention that the music you just heard at the beginning of the show was a snippet from the theme song for our web series, Reality on Demand. And now that's a song composed and performed by our friend T. Sean Hardy. And you can find our web series at realityondemandseries.com. Now, let's get to our featured interview with author Lori Shear. Welcome to the show, Lori. Thank you. Glad to be here. And uh, let's get started. We're here to talk about your new book. At least that's one of the main things we're talking about. And kind of curious, you know, what motivated you to write this book? And, um, you know, there are a lot of books about writing. So I'm kind of curious what you think this book offers that differs from other writing books out there. Wow, that's a big one. (laughs) (laughs) Great first question. Um, I would have to say that I've worked with a lot of writers, both uh, produced and published writers, uh, while working in the entertainment industry and also in an academic setting with a lot of uh, student and um, we, what we like to call aspiring, emerging, and established writers. And all writers, I find, are not real certain about the history of their genre or what really makes their genre their genre. And so I found that uh, I'd ask them questions, say they're writing a horror movie, horror script, and I'd ask them about a particular aspect of their plot and say, well, have you seen, and then fill in the blank of whatever the particular movie was, and they would look at me like um, a deer in the headlights and have no idea. And this would be a you know, fairly popular horror uh, franchise or, or, or such, and that just started to dawn on me that writers don't know this, and also as a pitch coach for a lot of industry 
organizations, I would be helping people with their pitches, knowing and anticipating that executives would ask them those same questions. Uh, Do you know that your plot is similar to, and then fill in the blank, and uh, I found that writers just do not know this. So I put together a, a writing method that will assist that writer in going about a way of knowing how and where the genre has been and then how they can put their authentic spin on the genre. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's great. I mean, as movies get older, as the, you know, the history of movies becomes older, I've noticed that maybe it's my age me getting older (laughs) i've noticed that younger filmmakers don't know certain movies that i think's like a classic film so i I think that's great to uh this book to encourage them to actually analyze their genre instead of just jumping into it um and reinventing the wheel sort of i guess right and and thank you for saying that because i'm obviously older than you are and i appreciate that you're even recognizing that as those that are following and coming up behind you that that you know there's a lack of not knowing mm-hmm. and that's not a great way to uh to put together future content i don't believe mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well before we get too much deeper in the book let's get a little personal <laughs> okay. let's talk a little bit about your background and uh, how you got started in film and writing uh, I, uh, I've always wanted to work in the entertainment industry, and so I did that. I, I uh, grew up in the Midwest uh, in the U.S. and then went to L.A. immediately after undergrad and um, with a degree in broadcasting. And I, I, I just said, I, I just want to work in, in television or film. And my first job was at ABC Entertainment, and I really was emerged in the entire development of a television network. And at that time, it was, it was a, a very popular television network. So I really learned fast how development goes, even though I had no idea that was even a job when I first started. (laughs) Um, Worked my way up. I went to Viacom from there, story analyst to manager of development. Uh, Did a lot of work with developing programming and content for MTV and Nickelodeon, Showtime, VH1, because Viacom purchased those uh, those networks. So I was right there when cable was starting to do their first run, both with programming, television programming and cable programming, but also developing movies of the week and movie content for Showtime to be distributed internationally in theaters and domestically on the cable network. So I've had both television and film background. Um, I've also produced a couple independent films. I worked my way up as a D girl and became vice president of programming for Women's Entertainment, a network that is still doing quite well. And I basically launched that network. So my background really has been in that working with writers, working with ideas, getting things into a into a manner that um it's going to work on uh, in both uh, cable network and theatrically um then i also added in the academic element which i really love to teach what i know so i've taught at a lot of places and uh, have been involved in a lot of academic programs in media film and television what is a d girl 
A D girl is short for development girl, and it's um it's a derogatory term. There are certainly men that are D girls, <laughs> um, obviously men and women. That essentially you start out as as just the reader. You read the scripts, you read the the content. Sometimes it's just a magazine. Uh, used to be a magazine article. Now it can be also magazine, but web based article. Uh, and see if there's a story there, and you do what's known as coverage, which is a three or four page book report on what that particular script or project is about. And so you work your way up, uh, and and you you start to begin to get a flavor for what's being submitted. And you're also working for whatever company. So that company may say, you know, look for the best new horror stuff, look for the best new romantic comedy, or whatever it might be. And so a D girl is someone who who works with those scripts, eventually will meet with the writers, eventually will work with other people in development to get a project to a point where the company thinks they're ready to green light it. Mm-hmm. And normally for television, would that be like, they do a pilot first? In there? the traditional, yeah, in the traditional way of almost the past 60 years, there was, there was the, the well-known pilot season, tr- traditionally happening in January through April, pilots would be made. The executive brass would look at those, pick 10 or 12, depending on what they needed. Um, and then those would premiere in the, in, the, in the fall. We're now seeing that that's just no longer the case. Cable really broke that open. Right. And on cable, you essentially make five episodes, throw them up on the wall. It's like pizza, you know, or <laughs> spaghetti. And if it works, people like it, well, then we'll make 12 more episodes. Um, and that's what we're seeing the networks doing now. They're not really admitting it, but they're, that's essentially where they're going. And NBC, something like NBC right now has to do that. They're just, they're just desperately looking for stuff. The the main broadcast networks have no idea what they're doing anymore because of the niche programming mm-hmm. and Netflix and Amazon and the new players in the game. So, yeah, cause it's new televisions year round now. There's no summer off like there used to be. Exactly. You know, I'm always curious about how a TV network figures out the programming. From your perspective and experience you had, you know, how, how do they approach, like how do they figure out what shows they're going to try for, what genres that they might try for? Is it is there a trend that helps ignite that? Is it competitive because they see a competitor doing something and they want to have a show that's like that? What have you seen? I've seen in the past the way it was in the sort of late 80s, early 90s, uh, and into the OOs, um, it was working with traditional or well-known showrunners, individuals who had already established themselves with other shows, the David E. Kelly, the Stephen Bochcos, the uh, Judd Apatows, those types that had had shows, and I could go on and on, but the, 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 the writer-producers who have brought previous well-known series whether drama or comedy to that particular network so they would get the first first um opportunities to pitch new ideas and the networks would essentially say yes because they've already proven themselves Mm -hmm. so there was that uh as far as looking for 
other things that are going on for the network. A lot of social trends. You'll see, if you even look at the history of sitcoms, we go from from family sitcoms to living room sitcoms to Friends and Seinfeld, where it's individuals who are friends and living together, no longer the family. Uh, you start to see that traditional move in society. And then now we're seeing, and we did then see a lot of single mothers, single parents. So it, it, you can look at trends and patterns in the type of programming based on society, based on what's happening in society. And that's essentially what the networks have tried to do. So in a way, our television is a reflection of our culture at the time. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's good or bad, but I would say, you know, short answer. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, let's, let's start shifting over a little bit closer to your book again. In the book, you do speak about the fracturing of entertainment, like how there we used to have those water cooler moments where you could talk about the, you know, the latest episode of whatever TV show, but now because we have so much entertainment, so many channels, that's become a thing of the past. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, it's the, it's the fragmentation of, of, of our media uh, in, that, in that not everyone's watching the same thing at once. And it, it, it's, um, it's becoming so um, diversified and so much of a niche industry that we're no longer going to have what was once known as mass media. In other words, everyone watching that particular show at one time. And remember I say at one time, everyone would watch the Thursday nights on NBC because there were three or four sitcoms in a row and then the next day talk about it. Because of our time shifting, our convenience, our availability of all of our handheld devices, uh, we are able to watch anything all the time. So we no longer have mass media. We have this fragmentation of, of media where certain people are watching certain things at certain times and others at other times. So it's the snacking, which is just testing things for 10 minutes or even a half an hour, which is rather long in this uh, arena, or the binging, which where you sit down for the 13 hours and watch House of Cards, uh, the, the, season, the first season or second season of a particular show on Netflix. So it's a very fascinating thing that we have between the snacking and the binging, and that crosses all generations. So um, we're no longer seeing a younger generation sitting and watching real-time TV. So all of our media is definitely fragmented. Now, do you think that's, uh, in your opinion, a good thing, a bad thing, or depending upon who's, which side of it you're on, perhaps? <laughs> right. right, right. You know, it's great for writers. It's great for creator, writer-creators such as yourself, such as many, many of the individuals that I've worked with, students, clients. It's fantastic because there's just there are thousands of outlets now with web networks. In addition to traditional cable and broadcasting, they're all looking for content. So that is really advantageous. What isn't advantageous is that, again, as a creator, writer-creator, you really have to work super hard on your social media to get those eyeballs because the eyeballs are roaming and there's so much. It's a kid in a candy store kind of thing. So you really have to get product, get content that's going to get their attention, whatever your target market is. So it's good and bad. 
as you said, your book does talk a lot about genres and the study of genre. So I'm kind of curious, you know, what's what's your favorite genre or genres, and why does it appeal to you? <laughs> oh, wow, what a great question. <laughs> I, I, you know, it, it isn't so much it isn't so much the genre because I've been very surprised by watching things that I and consuming things that I didn't think that I would like. It's really the storytelling mm-hmm. within whatever particular genre there is. And I, I would have to say I don't have any one favorite. It is whatever whatever story is being told that is effective and and moves me within whatever particular genre there is. I can tell you one genre I do not like, and that's military and war and uh, and and those kinds of movies. But that's just me. <laughs> Now, also in the book, you talk about how movies have gotten more, I forgot how you worded it exactly, chaotic something. Um, Basically, Michael Bay movies. (laughs) Where it's more about explosions than necessarily story and such. And I'm kind of curious what movies you might have seen in the last recent years that you feel have kind of bucked that trend a little bit, that, that are delivering good stories versus... Not I don't want to Michael Bay hate mail now, but <laughs> but uh, but you know what I mean. <laughs> right, right, right. And just off the top of my head, right, I was talking about chaos cinema. Yes, yes. Um, you know the the high proportion of visually confusing destruction and violence. I'm quoting my book. Um, <laughs> typically um, seen, you know, most recently, and a lot of the the issues we're having with this summer's box office is because that is the case. We have a lot of they shoot them up and blow them up and on CGI effects, but not a lot of story. And I, I really think we're going to soon be tiring of this. A couple of things that just come to mind as you ask me that. I think I just watched The Normal Heart on um, on HBO, and I, I just think it's, it's just riveting, just amazing work, both acting and writing. Um, the Perks of Being a Wallflower, I love that film. I think they did an amazing job at adapting it. Um, the, the, those are two that just come to mind quickly. So very different kinds of films too. Now you also talk about how, and you touched on this a little bit earlier, how cable TV is doing a good job creating some good quality stories, better than, than most movies and perhaps better than the network television. And what were some examples of some current cable TV shows that you think are, are really good examples of, of quality stories? Well, they're saying now, actually, I've just seen a couple articles that AMC has sort of broken the mold, both with their Breaking Bad and Mad Men. Mm-hmm. And I would have to say Mad Men for me is, and I know a lot of people complain, you know, it's like watching paint dry. There's not a lot happening and <laughs> it's more character driven, but it, it is just, it is just great. I just think it's fantastic. And, and it tends to be a, a, a good conversation starter because most folks will say, are you crazy? Um, so I, I, those two come to mind as far as really, uh, presenting things that, that are different and are, are, um, are helping cable raise the bar. I, I really think it's moved now to Netflix, though. Between House of Cards and Orange is the New Black, I really think um, Orange is the New Black really, in my opinion, has gone even farther than The Wire, which is which is just great. I, I just it's compelling. You cannot not watch it. So I think it's even shifted from cable to now uh, Netflix. Mm-hmm. 
I know Netflix has said before they're trying to become basically the next HBO in a way. <laughs> yes. Yes. And of course, HBO is trying to stop that. <laughs> of course. And, you know, they're doing great. I mean, Game of Thrones, come on, girls. I mean, those are all those are all fantastic pieces of, of, of work. Mm -hmm. And again, this golden age of writing for television based content, I think is we're, we're in the second golden age. Some people have said, and I, I really think it's true because most writers, if they really are really, really dedicated uh, writers and love to develop their characters, they're going to have more time to do that within those 13 episode series arcs and four or five seasons versus the one or two films and then the franchise the prequels and sequels of those films you can just explore more uh with with the cable or the netflix model are you at all disappointed or or perhaps not that maybe something like netflix that doesn't have uh, time limits or a built-in scheduling block calendar like like network does for for advertising and, and there are different quarters and stuff uh that they still kind of stick to kind of the same kind of time format that t that one hour tv shows usually are do you think it would be interesting if they experiment with that more or do you think that's wise because everyone's kind of used to it really good question i i think it's right now it's wise because everyone's used to it however if you look in the if you look at european television and one one miniseries comes to mind, very old now. It's sort of like from the 80s or 90s, called Berlin Alexanderplatz. People would would tune in German television. They'd tune in at whatever the time was, eight o'clock on a particular night. But it might be only 20 minutes, and then the next week it might be two hours, and the next week an hour, the next week a half hour. One never knew what it was going to be, but you would tune in to see because you you were so wrapped up in the story. So I think once we in America we're used to the the everything being tied up within that 48 minutes of an hour show, uh, and 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 it's going to take a while to get out of that. But I think Netflix should definitely and Amazon and Yahoo and all the others should definitely test that. I think I think it eventually will work, especially with short attention spans and especially with web series becoming much, much more um, on the scene and more quality-driven web series. Okay, so your book's packed with tons of, of tips for writers. I was wondering if maybe you'd share one of those tips on the podcast. I think one should – actually, I'm not sure if this is in the – the book but i think one should definitely take a look at yeah this is in the book definitely take a look at the traits of the genre that you're writing within and really really study that and by traits i mean if you're writing a vampire story then most vampire stories uh have the the the, the where a vampire usually sleeps in a coffin or a haunted house of some sort. They um, can be driven away by garlic or crosses. They generally tend to feed on human blood, etc., etc. There's certain things that happen within that type of story. Because once you master those traits, you can then add something to it to make the story 
better or to put your own brand on that story, just as Stephanie Meyer did with vampires that suddenly had this unrequited love and they were also available and could be seen in daylight, which interestingly enough, we now see True Blood and Vampire Chronicles. All of these current vampires now can come out in the day. Previously, they would be they would be sleeping at the sunrise. Uh, so that's something new, some new trait that they brought to the genre, which I think is is exciting. And I want to challenge all writers to do that. And that puts your own authentic stamp on the genre. I'm just glad that Twilight vampires are the only ones that glitter or sparkle. Well, that too, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and when- and when I do presentations and in my classes, I say, well, there could be a vampire among us right now, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and another vampire, new one, I don't know if you've seen it, but The Strain from uh, Del Toro. Yes, yes. yes. Takes a, a unique take on it. So Yes, which is fantastic. I, I, that is what I want to see. As, you, in, as you've seen in the book, the prequels, sequels, reboots, and remakes, we've had enough. I know there's authentic storytelling out there. I know every writer has their version of their genre to, to give us, and that's what I want to encourage. Mm-hmm. Is there any other projects that you're working on that you have coming up in the near future? Right now, I'm really concentrating on getting this book out there because it is it is something that I have not seen uh, being taught on an academic level or within the general public. And so it's taken i just I just did the University of Film and Video conference and I and the Screenwriters World West conference. And I've introduced this in a couple more before that earlier this summer. And it's still um, something new for, for writers. They're, they're, they're generally uh, beginning to understand that they need to know this. So I need to spend a little bit more time on making sure everybody understands this. So I have a lot of, a lot of um, other, the Writer's Store and Script Writers Network and uh, a couple of other local uh, places in the Midwest that I'll be speaking. So for the next two or three months, this is this is it's getting the baby out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems like at least my film school experience. It seemed like it was more focused when it came to history, for example, on either certain directors or or on perhaps certain historical time periods like silent film and and, and others. Uh, and I don't remember. Uh, seen a whole lot of, of things that really focused on like the actual history of specific genres and, and really teaching that element as much, which I think is very, very useful. <laughs> right. And, and in fact, that's what I, I really wanted to make, to emphasize that at the uh, University of Film and Video Conference, which is an, a yearly conference for media professors where one gathers and learns the, the latest industry um, information and such. And I really wanted them to see that I am teaching theory in this odd way mm-hmm. because I do ask the student to, to look for the quintessential text, meaning the movie of all of the movies in their genre that best that they want to emulate with the script that they're writing. Uh, so in that case, they need to do that research of finding out all the other road movies that have been made and all the other um, stories about uh, if you're writing a fairy tale of some sort. Um, one needs to know all of that. And that's really doing theory. But 
it's in a different manner because I find that most of my students are not happy about doing research. <laughs> so if they do research on a topic they like, that should give them the incentive to get more information so it will help them get a better grade or write a better script or both. Mm -hmm. So for those kind of quintessential text. Um, can you give me an example of one? Because I think you do give some examples in the book, if I remember correctly. Right. Um, I'll, just, I'll just go with fairy tale. Um, the Princess Bride would be probably one of the most quintessential fairy tale movies. For road movies, Easy Rider. For, uh, for horror movies, really Psycho, because mm -hmm. it goes back to Psycho. And and you can you can and and I, and these are all mutable. What I really want is for people to have a discussion, and to say no, I don't think Psycho so much. I think it was you know this particular franchise, and and that's great. That's the conversation that I want to to have emerge. It's like what everybody discusses at all the cons. <laughs> you know what was the best this that and that and whatever and and in order to have that conversation you need to know what you're talking about mm -hmm. and, and where can our listeners find your book and you online i'm at laurieshear.com l-a-u-r-i-e-s-c-h-e-e-r.com and the book is on amazon the writer's advantage a toolkit for mastering your genre and uh, everyone can reach me at mediagoddess at laurieshear.com. Oh, do you have any other past books or anything you'd like to mention? No, I think it's best to just keep it at this right now. This has been lovely. Great, great questions. Okay. Uh, yeah, just uh, would be nice for people to, to uh, take a look at my book. It will help you whether you're writing a, a television, film, web series, uh, all of the above. And also they can find your book at uh, mwp.com, right? Correct. Information plus the syllabus. If anybody's interested in teaching or understanding the process of the book, um, that's there also. Oh, great. I didn't know that. Okay. Well, thank you for being on the show. Okay, Marks. Thank you. Good luck with your web series. I'm looking forward to uh, sharing them with my students. Oh, good. Thanks. Hello everybody, my name is Timo Borenslav. I'm a director of an awesome film about the Nazis from the Dark Side of the Moon called Iron Sky. And you are listening to Jonatainment. Well, thanks to Lori for speaking with us. Uh, please go check out her book and learn how to master your favorite genre. Now it's time for those promised bonus interviews from Miami WebFest. Hey guys, I'm up here at Miami WebFest and I'm joined by web series creators Ben Warner and Julian Stambouli. What's your web series? Our web series is LARPs the Series. All right. And tell everybody about LARPs. Well, we're from Montreal, Canada. Uh, and uh, LARPs, actually, we, we finished it a, a year ago. It's, it's a story of um, five friends who, who meet regularly to LARP. And LARP stands for Live Action Role Playing, uh, which is basically Dungeons and Dragons, but you dress up and you, you enact your characters. So it's almost like, like we used to play as children, but within a Dungeons and Dragons or, or sometimes you know vampire setting but there's, there's always rules and there is an actual game to it um, so like I said the show follows five, five friends who uh, meet regularly to do this and uh, it's, it's an accessible show because it's not really about LARPing it's, it's about you know like I was saying it's about the people who LARP and, and the conflict and, and the stories come from from a group of people trying to keep their, their fictional imaginary world uh, separate from their reality, you know, and so that that's kind of where 
the the humor and the conflict come from when those two kind of get mixed up within each other and how they start affecting each other. So where did this concept come from? Are you guys big LARPers? Uh, we're actually, neither Julian nor myself are uh, have been LARPers in the past. Uh, it was just a concept that Julian uh, came up with to talk about you know, duality, to talk about the different types of personalities that we have in different settings. And he kind of originally based the, the characters when he first came up with the concept many, many years ago on his own life experiences between his family, between his friends, between his relationships. Um, but so when we really wanted to move forward with the project, uh, Julian met with a good friend of ours, John Verrill, uh, who's the writer now of the series. John is a LARPer and John has been a LARPer for many years. So as a writer, Julian thought that he'd be the perfect person to write the show and, and very, very thankfully uh, for us, John agreed. So John wrote the show, Julian directed the show, I produced the show, and that's kind of how it came to be, I guess. Have you guys done some LARPing since then? You know what's great, actually, is that right before, right before we started shooting, maybe uh, two weeks before shooting, um, John, uh, rightfully so, wanting all, all of us to have experience within LARPing so that we can properly understand and the actors can properly understand what they're embarking on as characters, he actually designed a one-hour what's called a one-shot LARP for the entire cast and crew. And so, well, well, most of the cast and crew, I should yeah, say. Most the of the core, cast. The core team. The core the team. Cast, yeah. <laughs> and uh, we all met up in a, in a park, and uh, he brought a bunch of foam swords and a bunch of, you know, little bean bags for us to whip at each other, and he took us through a story. I think it was about, like, a, like Americans and Russians meeting on a space shuttle or something like that. <laughs> it, was, it was a lot of fun. And after that first five minutes of us all being very aware that everyone in the park was watching us, once we got past that, it was, it was like childhood again, and then you know I think I think that helped us color the direction of the show when we actually started you know starting the shooting. That's awesome. Who are your characters? Well, the characters are. Um, I'll just be. I'll be very brief. The characters are Arthur, an office drone who loves to LARP and play a different character. Uh, Brittany, a student, uh, a theater student who loves to act out different roles when she LARPs. Um, uh, Will, a, a barista at a coffee shop, who likes to LARP just to hang out and play with his friends. Shane, who's the, the new addition to the group, the new member of the group, who, uh, who does have some mysteries surrounding her. That's all I'll, all I'll say for those of you who haven't yet watched the series, LARPtheseries.com. Um, and finally, rounding out the, the, the cast is Evan, played by our writer, John Verrill, who's the game master, the one who kind of referees and, and helps to narrate the story of the characters in the game. You know, one thing we really wanted to explore is the fact that um, everyone stereotypes this, this subculture, and a lot of geek subcultures, uh, and they stereotype the kind of people who maybe participated in it. But one thing we really wanted to pay respect to is a different, the different array of people who would, who would game and why they would game. So whereas one person is using the game to kind of explore a more confident side of herself. On the other hand, you've got the character Will who just does it to game around with friends and it's just like a, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. And then you have someone else who just needs to be an escapist. He loves that idea of a, of a fantasy world because he hates his job. And You know, so there, there are more extremes, but then just like in real life, there, there's people who just want to game because they want to be with their friends and they want to have some fun and they want to whack each other with swords. <laughs> who wouldn't want to whack Ben with a foam sword. It's true. I'm very whackable. <laughs> and, and how many episodes are out? 
So for the first season, uh, we released 10 episodes and one, let's call it a teaser episode, which we, which we like to call our episode zero. So the show ranges from episode zero to episode 10. I guess that's kind of 11 episodes in total. Uh, episode zero is three minutes in length. The longest of the episodes, somewhere somewhere in the late kind of stages of the season, is about seven minutes in length. So in that kind of four-minute range of, 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 of potential times, that's how long the the series kind of the whole the whole season clocks in at 63 minutes it's very bingeable okay great and uh where can people find you online uh again you can find us on our website at www.larpstheseries.com um and at any any social media uh site just add slash larps the series facebook slash larps the series vine slash larps the series twitter slash larps the series anything uh, and, and on Twitter, we are we are at LARPs the series, all one word. Um, yeah, very easy. Google LARPs the series, you'll find us <laughs> on the Great. first like seven pages or so. Yeah. All right, thanks guys. Thanks Cheers, so thanks Marks. Hey guys, still here in Miami Webfest, and I'm joined by Leia Rifkin, and I'm the executive producer and director of Out of Frame. So tell us a little bit about Out of Frame. Uh, well, Out of Frame is an edutainment web series for tweens. I want to say kids, but they're not really kids. It's like 12 to 17-year-olds. Um, and each week we talk about a different person in the media who has had some sort of significant impact on the industry. So whether they're a writer or a producer or a director or actor, um, we're going to get into other kinds of people in later seasons. But um, we talk about their personal life, and then we sort of draw parallels between their personal life and their work. And um, there's a disembodied voice named Buff, and he sort of interacts with the host. And uh, it's, it's edutainment, so it's a mix between some fun comedy and inf- information. Yeah, and the episode that we saw earlier today, it was screened, had uh, Jane Espenson. So how do you pick who you're in cover for each episode? Um, well, it's kind of done randomly. Uh, when I was working with the co-creator of the show, um, we sort of just decided we wanted a good mix of people, so we wanted a mix between females and males, we wanted, you know, different actors, writers, we wanted to make sure we covered a spectrum, so we weren't really sort of hell-bent on <laughs> certain people, but we kind of, each of us had our insights into who we wanted to cover. Um, my personal addition, I guess, to the list was Mary Pickford, I thought that she was a really important person to talk about in the first season because she was highly influential in the beginnings of the film and television industry with you know the age of Charlie Chaplin and all that so she was one person that I really wanted to cover which we did Um, but the whole list was kind of more of a collaborative like people would just sort of give their thoughts on who they wanted who they thought would be good to cover and we narrowed it down to 10 people. And you're you're filming up in Toronto? Yes yeah we first season we were using just a, a family a member of mine had a, an office space, so we it was big enough to sort of put up a backdrop and some lights and some equipment. So um, we shot there, but season two we were in a studio. But it, yes, it's all in Toronto. How many episodes per season? It's ten, uh, and season two is also ten. But I'm considering doing more for consecutive seasons. And, and when will we see a uh, season three? Season well, season two hasn't come out yet, so. So when are we gonna see that? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, season two will probably be launched uh, early November, like late October. Don't have an exact date yet. Um, probably the first or second week of November is my guess. And season three, I'm gonna guess is probably gonna be sometime in 2015 because <laughs> I haven't even thought about season three yet. <laughs>
this is your first venture in web series, is that right? Yes, uh, I've done you know shorts and some other small things, but it was kind of the first legitimate production that was required a lot of organization and planning and writing and collaboration with a lot of people. So it was a great learning experience, and I've from season one to season two, we've learned a lot in terms of process and how to do things more organized and, and more efficiently kind of thing so we've made a lot of changes for season two and added a lot of things because of our mistakes from season one um but yeah we you know it's been just a process of learning for me really and that's I can't ask for anything more so talking about learning from mistakes is there a tip you would give somebody out there who wants to do a web series something to watch out for so they don't make that mistake well if anyone wants to get into production they should know that shit hits the fan at some point like something's gonna go wrong on set whether it's people showing up late whether it's them not knowing their lines not being prepared whatever it may be I think it's just a matter of if you're like for example I'm the producer so if you're if that person is the producer they need to take responsibility and just deal with it and I think thinking on your feet is really important so learning how to solve a problem very quickly because you don't want to waste an hour trying to find a solution to the problem it's like just you just have to make a decision and I've learned that I didn't do it so much in season one but for season two I made sure that whenever there was a hitch on set I would always be quick to make a decision just so that we can move forward because you time is money (laughs) time is really money and where can people find you online uh, well, they can find Out of Frame online in several places, but the YouTube uh, link is youtube.com slash series. but we're also on Blip TV and now on Battery Pop as well. Okay, great. Well, thank you. Thank you. Hey, guys. This is Marks up here in, well, down here in Miami WebFest. <laughs> so, and I am joined by... Amy Hoff from Caledonia. Okay. Well, why don't you tell us a little bit about Caledonia? Uh, Caledonia is a web series that is based on a series of novels that I wrote, and the first book is coming out next spring um, from Crooked Cat Books, actually. It's about a woman who's a police officer, and she's just gone through a very bad divorce. She gets recruited to a Glasgow branch of Interpol, and she accepts because she wants to leave her past behind, and she very quickly learns that everyone that she's working with is a monster from Scottish folklore. Great. And what inspired that story? I'm a Scottish folklorist, and I specialize in monsters, so I've lived in Scotland for about six years, and while living in Glasgow, which is a very violent city, and studying fairy lore, I got a lot of strange ideas about what it must be like, or would be like, if there were monsters still living today in that environment. So there's a book coming out, and we're on season two, is that right? Yes, this is the second season. It's called Caledonia Mortal Souls, and it's based on the second book in the series. There are eight in total so far. And how do you judge, like, uh, what you're going to use folklore-wise? Like, there's a, a character, hopefully I'm not giving away anything, like there's a phoenix that might be a little different than what people expect for a phoenix. How do you, if you can give us an example of how you came about, those, those creative decisions... <laughs> Well, the phoenix is actually um, a Middle Eastern folkloric monster, but that's why it's an Interpol, because there are other monsters from around the world. Um, I choose different monsters because I think something about them is interesting or because I wanted to do, in this particular case, I wanted to have a very, like, a positive Muslim female character. And the girl that helped me write the character, um, because I wanted the background and I wanted to make sure everything was as accurate as possible, um, 
I had said to her, like, what, you know, what do you think would be a good monster for this character to be? And we talked about a few different things. And then I said, well, what about a phoenix? And she said, that's really strange because that's a character that I play when I role play every single time that I do it. I'm always a phoenix. And I said, let's do that. So a lot of it comes from, because I do a lot of, it's not really, not so much collaboration, but just like consulting different people because I really want there to be a lot of variety. Um, as far as the Scottish monsters, I tend to choose the ones that I really love. Like Selkies are my personal favorite monster in the world ever. So, Is there a monster you haven't had yet that you really would like to, to have in the future? Um, I don't want to give anything away from the next books. <laughs> um, Can you tell us what, what uh, culture it's from? No, <laughs> I, I, I just don't want to. I don't want to no, get. No, no, I don't want to cool. get too. Um, well, how, well, about, how about this? Uh, is there a monster that you have no plans of using currently, but you would like to someday if you can figure it out? Well, there is a there is um, a monster that's in the show that I really I'm hoping to have in it. It's only been re- referenced once, um, which is unicorns, but. When they talk about unicorns, they're talking about who might be doing the serial killing in the first series, in the first season. And um, Dorian says to Leah, uh, she says, do you um, have any suspects? And she sa- and he says, do you mean besides the unicorns? And she says, what? And he goes, well, you know, their natural food source is kind of depleted, virgins. <laughs> so the unicorns are actually extremely violent, terrifying things that feed on virgins. And I would really, I want to have them in the show, but I'm, I, it, we haven't done that yet. That's so cool. That's what I would like to do. <laughs> um, so Dorian Gray's in there. So, uh, you know, Dorian Gray's from a classic, you know, story. Um, I was wondering why you decided to make him like a fairy. Um, in this, st- actually, in the story, um, it's the other way around. He inspired the novel. He met Oscar Wilde, and he was kind of. A playboy and a drug addict before he became taken and you know sort of settled down in the selkie sense and when uh, and they met Oscar Wilde and Dorian Gray one day in a cafe and they were drinking together and they had this conversation about what would it what would it be like if a man was beautiful and immortal and never aged and what kind of things would this man do and because Dorian of course has already had that experience talk to him about it and then and um then the last thing he, there's a journal entry where he's writing about this and then he says i wonder if anything will come of this conversation from the one day i met oscar wilde so dorian dorian he's not he isn't dorian gray but the book is based on on him cool cool all right and uh, where can people find you online we are at www.caledoniaseries.co.uk and um, Twitter handle is at Caledonia Series. All right, well, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> hey guys, this is Marks at Miami Web Fest, and um, interviewing a couple of web series creators here uh, outside of the US, which is exciting. So, uh, can you guys introduce yourselves? Hello, I am David Varolao. I am the director and producer of Black Cow the Series. And I'm Antonio Polera. And I'm one of the actors of Black Alice series. Okay, great. And what country are you guys from? Italy. So, and Blackout, what, what's Blackout about? Blackout is about uh, mystery, adventure, emotions, uh, uh, everything uh, that uh, you can see beyond the vision, everything uh, that uh, you want to know about um, the Illuminati. 
Okay, well, that's quite a nice story behind that. That's well, the the catchphrase of the series is, "Could it be that coincidences do not exist?" Meaning that some people believe that in a god, some people believe in fate, some other people believe there is some kind of scientific or you know like you know yeah kind of scientific reason behind all of that. So. Through everyday stories, blackouts, and the stories turn, ara- turn around the, the lives of our peoples, and um, with blackout we see the past of these people, and uh, because um, these people are connected by four keys, and uh, we can see a flashback of the Second World War, and uh, there are so many connections about the, the past and the future. You can discover it with like out the series, uh, all of this stuff. Can you tell us a little bit about the character you play? Ooh, <laughs> that's uh, well, no, I can tell you pretty much all about that. Ah, uh, play a Nazi officer. <laughs> He's he doesn't have a key. He he has a key role in because these keys that the lead roles the characters in in the present time have they are not like you know new keys they come from the past and they pass from hand to hand they end up to one of them to hitler's hand and i'm his buddy i'm his right arm i have um a meeting with the well some of guardians. the guardians okay i can tell that i i never know how much i can talk <laughs> i can say okay One of these guardians gets in touch with me and he asked me to get one of these keys because this key because I'm I'm Hitler's best buddy right arm. So yes, that's it basically. That's all I can say. I will <laughs> for it so far. And what uh, inspired the creation of this series? Everything uh, about the mystery because uh, I like um, to tell a story. Uh, of uh, the life of the people and uh, because uh, I love uh, the the mystery I love um, everything that uh, you can uh, you can know about uh, the o- the other life uh, from uh, the other world from the universe uh, and I believe in the forza del universo come si può dire the force of universe the strength the no the force of universe And uh, just uh, blackout for me was it was an experiment uh, to to try my ability to try my um, skills and to grow in a better way and uh, to um, learn uh, everything that uh, I can know I can learn. Where can people find you in the series? Uh, blackout uh, now uh, in my website uh, www. For now, but uh, also on the Facebook, uh, you can uh, search uh, "Blackout the Series," mm-hmm. and uh, on YouTube. Uh, now uh, there is only uh, the trailer, not the series yet, but uh, soon, coming soon. Great. And one last question: So now that you've had this experience working on on this series and web series, would you what tip would you give someone else who's first starting out in web series? Okay, uh, the first thing is uh, the idea. 
the most important thing I think is is uh, to think about uh, uh, what is the best idea that I can create a series uh, and uh, what I can do the best with my um, equipment with my actors. Uh, uh, you have to think uh, what you can do with your um, things. Don't try to do. Oh, I want to do an explosion. Okay, yeah, that's good. Mm -hmm. But if you can do don't try this I think but uh, another thing is uh, the passion you have to do uh, everything um, you have to do uh, the series with uh, your uh, volunteer with, and uh, believe in your dream and um, do uh, like um, like your vision like your way because only you can uh, see the images uh, the um, the right way uh, like you can um, you can um, do your uh, idea you can put your idea in the in the screen so my advice is uh, to go on and uh, believe in uh, what you are and uh, what you want to do well thank you guys thank you thank you hey guys this is marks at miami web fest and I'm hanging out with a bunch of awesome web series creators. And uh, one of those awesome web series creators with me right now is... Darren Murphy from Timekeeper. And uh, can you tell everybody a little bit about Timekeeper? Sure, Timekeeper is a, it's a, traveling, a time traveling web series. It follows the exploits of uh, the lead actor, Mitch Manners, who is trapped in the past. He doesn't know how he got there, but he's basically jumping back in time. And each time he jumps, he has a, a mission to do. And if he doesn't perform that mission, he's warned that some awful calamity will befall the earth and nothing much more than that and it's always something stupid he's, he's kind of the world's most boring time traveler when you first meet him he's asked to stand on a corner and hitchhike he's asked to, to cut in line start an argument with someone steal their fish sandwich something like that something innocuous so he always obeys the almighty powers that you know lest some something some evil befall the earth he, he just he just does it however every time he does this job his mind is wiped and he's left walking and talking with kind of a general sense of of himself, but not where he, where he is, how he got there, what his past is. And he has a handler who kind of fills him in on what to do, where to go. At the end of episode one, though, he, he gets, um, and the way he gets these messages of what to do is through a, through a vision, kind of a psychic download. And at the end of episode one, he, he sees himself shooting someone in the head. And even though he always forgets, it seems like a shock, like, hey, this is new. And that starts the journey, um, you know, diverging into how Mitch gets out of this trouble, how he gets, how he gets out of being trapped in the past. And what does he do to avoid, uh, you know, calamity befalling the earth because of refusing the powers? Great. And you film here in Florida? Yeah, it's um, all filmed in uh, St. Petersburg and uh, Tampa, Florida. There, there was a couple of uh, small scenes shot around the country simply because I, I happened to be in the, the locale I shot, for instance, in, uh, in Denver. I took, um, you know, my, my camera. I've, uh, we use primarily 5D and 7D. I just packed it in my suitcase. And since I knew it was snowing there and I figure, hey, Florida generally doesn't have snow. Uh, in between meetings while I was there for work, I, I just ran uh, as fast as I could while trying to get to a plane and found a nice snowy field to shoot a little small scene in just to add in, you know, to give it some color. But yeah, primarily um, St. Pete and uh, Tampa, Florida. Great. And where did the concept come from? Concept came from a couple of places um, and just kind of, you know, as I, um, as I kind of became aware of the web series community and thought, hey, that might be a good idea. I'd written a feature, and but obviously that's a lot of investment, a lot of time, a lot of money. Um, and something I still, you know, things I still want to do. But as far as web series, um, I, I kind of stumbled across that. I always liked time travel. I, um, 
and uh, I started to think about kind of that general rule in, in a lot of shows. Whenever you deal with time travel, whenever you deal with paradoxes and, and loops and things that don't fit, you usually, and, and I, I point out Star Trek, Star Trek's one of my favorite programs, but there's always someone after one of those loops ha happen, someone points out, hey, but didn't that guy, shouldn't he have done that thing? And if he didn't do that thing, then this wouldn't have happened. That cause and effect breakdown where they're like, this doesn't make sense, there's a paradox. Someone always says, oh, don't worry about that temporal, you know, anomalies, you, you, you'll, you'll, you'll get a headache. And they kind of just sweep it under the rug and it's playful and they always do that and it's, it's a fun little moment. So I said, well, what, what if we take that moment and we flip it on its head and say, let's make a show that's all about those paradoxes and why they're there, how they work and what, and what happens to them. So that was one thing. And the other thing that kind of led me to it was, if anyone's ever played the game Prince of Persia, uh, it was the first one, one of my favorite games from, from a while back. Every time you go get to a save point, it's like a little geyser of light. And as soon as you hit save, you get these, this little like flash of, of the future, what you're about to go through, these little little snippets of time. And it's about time you're able to reverse time in, uh, in, in the game. So that, that little moment, that little kind of psychic download that you get when the, when the game saves, I thought would be a cool little intro for every time Mitch jumps back in time and he gets his little, little mission of what to do. So those two things together is kind of where I went. So whenever I give people, you know, kind of that, uh, that the elevator pitch of, you know, what's it, what's it about? What's it in a nutshell? I usually say, um, if you take uh, Quantum Leap and you take the movie Memento, which is like kind of a darker story, kind of told in reverse, you smash those two things together. That's kind of what you, what you got. Okay, so now you are screening an episode from season two, yeah. right? So, so you're on season two. Is there going to be a season three? It's season three. Um, um, partway through writing right now. Um, just one of the things, you know, um, so far, se season one was uh, completely without pay for, for cast and crew. Uh, it was it was all the normal expenses of insurance and uh, and food and all that. And still, you know, that gets expensive over, you know, uh, a 12 to 15 day shoot, which season one was. Season two, I knew it was going to be bigger. There was a lot more locations, a lot more people. So I wanted to make sure I had things like, you know, a really strong AD. Wanted to make sure I had sound completely covered every day. Had someone who was responsible for it. And just have other people on set who, you know, who... who um, who are dedicated to the project and could could commit their time because a lot of people involved even even in season one this is what they do they're professionals and every day they worked on my set they, they could have been working somewhere else probably making uh, you know money so um season two did have some small pay to make sure i could i could make those those guys commit and at least get some compensation for gas and time and effort and and you know they really believed in the project so they were willing to take that that pay cut but it was still, you know, was was an expense. So for season three, that came, you know, straight out of my pocket. So for season three, I really want to try a crowdfunding. I was listening to some of the panels, you know, about some of those ideas, and you know, a, a lot of those ideas, you know, kind of rest on that that PR bone that I don't have in my body. So <laughs> uh, no matter you know what platform you use, it seems like you really need someone pushing that effort, engaging with people. And I, I do my best. I try on Twitter and and, and trying to build that community, but it's just you know not something I'm great at. So that's something I'm going to be looking for just to try and share that expense and also just to make sure that you know everyone who ends up seeing episodes and comes back to me generally gives me very positive news when, when season three i want you know, want to see it i binge watch the whole show but it still doesn't have a huge view count and that's something you know again that, that pr person that I'd, I'd like to to find and drop out of the sky right now next to me you know I, i'd like to find help to do to make sure that people really want a season three and that um that they're looking forward to it so yes I'm, i think one way or another it'll happen i guess it's just that question of will i have the crew i want to make it happen or will i you know inject myself into a nightmare of uh, you know of, of a lot of it resting more on me which uh, you know I'd like not to have what's your background in film um, well, I've always been interested in film uh, my father um, you know worked for color by deluxe in New York I uh, was from, from Long Island originally um, he wasn't really in the um, you know filmmaking um, uh, in general but he uh, graduated from the, I think it's the New York Institute of Art 
or, or a photography, I can't remember. But I mean, he, he graduated with a degree in photography, and uh, he was always a photographer throughout his entire life. Had tons of you know pictures, family albums. Still have some of his old pictures from school uh, hanging up um, from where he won some prizes, things like that. So that's kind of um, you know where that started. And then just go, in college, just got really interested in, in film. I went to University of South Florida in Tampa, and they had they had a um, they had a good film program. I think it was strong in the '70s, and it kind of started to fall off a cliff towards when I went, which, you know, just my luck, my last name's Murphy, and that's how that goes. So <laughs> halfway through through film school, um, they decided they were going to end the film program uh, with, the, with the note that anyone that was in it could finish it. But it's, you know, one of those things where, hey, we're going to keep it around, but we're not going to inject any more money into it, so good luck with that. So halfway through, you know, a lot of stuff started to break down. But, you know, I got, that's where I got to learn about all, you know, 16-millimeter cameras, editing on steam backs, editing on three-quarter inch, half-inch, all that kind of stuff, all the kind of the, the, um, uh, the bare bones of filmmaking, you know, you know, shooting on a Bolex, transferring it to, um, onto tape, editing on tape, all that kind of stuff. Uh, that's where I, I started that. And then I, just, I really just started working on projects, like right at the end of my last um, course in, the, in that, that college was a directed study where I decided I was going to make a movie, an insane movie. Uh, on, on 16 millimeter, I actually decided I spent a lot of my money. I bought an, uh, an Eclair ACL, um, started buying rolls of 16 millimeter film. I decided black and white, even, even that was expensive. I think black and white at that time, I can get 400 feet for like, I want to say it was like 40 to $80, and processing was about the same. So I spent a huge, and it was a feature. I decided I was making a feature, it was going to happen. And it, it, did ha it did end up happening. I didn't actually finish it that semester, but I kept shooting and shooting and shooting, and I still have probably about 20,000 feet worth of film sitting in my house still that I, I just can't throw out because it's just too painful. It's just sitting in these nice boxes, and it, it, it's, I've never watched it since. It's a, it's a very boring film that I, it's hard to watch, but it's, it was my first thing, the first thing I did, the first thing I, I decided I was going to finish and did, and then kind of from there found all those things you do as an initial filmmaker of, wow, that didn't work. What do I need to do you know, the next time? And kind of that progressive process of learning as you go. And now that you've done some web series, uh, two seasons of your show, um, is there a tip, something you would give to someone who's going to do a web series, something to, um, uh, like a mistake you made that you learned from that to help them not make? So Yes. Uh, I learned, uh, specific to web series, not really filmmaking in general, was plenty to talk about there, but specific to web series, you know, I've been told this and I've learned this, um, is um, just kind of knowing what you're going to do with it. Um, it's kind of like that thing with, um, you know, you have an idea for a film and say, hey, you know, let's get a group together. We're going to submit it to a festival. Great. But with a web series, with it, like the Internet in general, you build something, you make it, and you stick it out there. And it's like, well, who's ready for it? You know, uh, and I've seen some other web series do, do this a lot better than I. Put out a trailer, you know, a long time ahead. Put out information a long time ahead. Start gathering those followers even before there's a thing to look at. Start talking about it. Start, start getting people interested so that when it is there, there's people waiting for it and want it and see, wanting to see it versus I, I did a little bit more of the reverse. I did put out a trailer, but I was so eager to put it out while we were shooting. I, I think the, you know, the, the season wasn't available for like a year. So keeping people interested when nothing there, you know, is, is kind of a hard lesson to learn. Um, and then just knowing who do you want to see this? You know, is there a, what groups and where are they? Because trying to find that information after the fact is difficult. You know, so I started going to a bunch of like sci-fi fantasy blog websites and started to post all that stuff. You know, recently, trying just to get you know and anyone who who might be looking for that kind of stuff. You know, obviously there's tons of Doctor Who fans out there, like time travel things like that. Trying to find all those forums now, all that kind of stuff would have been great to do at the start. And also just involving some people who have that that PR 
phone, that, that, that marketing hat that they can wear, whether it's they, they do that full-time or not. You're starting finding those people ahead of time, having them become part of your team, I think is, is, a, is a great thing to do at the start versus try, like, like me, I'm trying to find that person now. Um, and yeah, that's the difficult, it's all. So, I mean, I think as far as the production, I think I had, I learned a lot of lessons, had everything in place as far as having a team to build the thing, but then what to do with it, where should it go? What am I trying to get it to, you know, get it to do? That's, that's the part that I, uh, lesson I'm learning now. Where can people find you online? Easiest ways through the, the main website for Timekeeper is uh, timekeepershow.com. You can also follow me at, uh, at timekeepershow on Twitter. On Facebook, it's facebook.com slash timekeepershow. Um, yeah, that's probably the easiest way. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you. Hi, this is John Batum from Saturday Night Fever and War Games, and you're listening to Genretainment. Well, I hope you enjoy those web series creator bonus interviews. Uh, please go check out their web series online. Now, before we go, I do want to remind you that you can keep track of us on our Genretainment Facebook page. Also, my Twitter account, which is at Mr. Marks, it's M-R-M-A-R-X, or our website at Genretainment.com. And, of course, you can keep track of all the shows on Sci-Fi Pulse Radio by going to SciFiPulseRadio.com. So that's it for today's Genretainment. We'll be back soon with all new guests from our favorite films, TV shows, novels, and web series. And Genretainment is a production of Alien Jungle Bug Productions. Until next time. Bad monkey.